2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. amen. So I'm going to tell you, this is a unique topic tonight. A very unique topic. This is not a topic that I would pick to preach if I were just picking randomly. I would pick things like 2 Kings 5, what I picked to preach this morning. This is a topic that you're only going to touch on if you're preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, where you can't skip it. And th those are the kind that I think our church really needs, by the way. Um, these are the kind of things that, 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 that are sometimes hard to preach, maybe hard to hear in some regards, but, but a lot of times these are the very truths that we need, the ones that we try to dodge sometimes. So, so I think God's going to help us. I, I want to read the text here in just a moment, but, but let me give you a little bit of background, because up to this point um, in his second letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul has sought to comfort, number one, to clarify, number two, and to challenge, number three. So in chapter one, he comforted through um, urging them to stand fast in suffering. And then chapter two, he clarified some teaching on the end time so as to urge them to stand fast in the truth. And then last week, we talked about how that he challenged them to stand fast in prayer for the gospel work all around the world outside of these walls. And we had a wonderful time of corporate prayer for our missionaries. It was great. But the way he closes the letter, and this is the last sermon out of 2 Thessalonians, the way he closes is very different in tone. He's not clarifying, uh, he's not uh, comforting necessarily, um, he is correcting. There's a significant problem going on in this church that Paul has already dealt with in his first letter. He's already verbally taught them in his first three weeks of planning this church, but it has gotten worse. And now he has to address it head on, and he has to teach the church how to respond and deal with this problem. I want to read the text at large and then we'll study it tonight. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, follow along here, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this is the first three, three weeks that they were with them, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now then that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Very good text. Paul begins in verse 6 with addressing the problem at hand. And he said, there are some among you in your church membership, in your congregation, that are walking disorderly. What does disorderly mean? Well, we talked about this word in the first epistle when Paul, when we talked about the ministry of mutual accountability. And Paul said, you need to warn or admonish the unruly. Same exact word. And it has the same idea. It's a military term. They're out of step. They're out of rank. The best synonym to help us understand what this word means in this context is the word disruptive. 
there were some church members who through their disorderly conduct had actually become disruptive in the church of Thessalonica. But Paul elaborates more on their conduct in verse 11. He says, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. So the problem was that some church members who, who were capable of working stopped working. They had slipped into a state of idleness and eventually persisted in the sin of slothfulness. But listen, it's not like they weren't doing anything at all. Because when they came to church, they were busy. They were just busy doing the wrong thing. They were busy bodies. You know what that means? It meant they were meddlers. They were being disruptive. And by the way, being a busybody is often tied into the sin of slothfulness because when you're not busy about your own business, you put your nose in other people's. It's meddling. So then the question is, how was this slothfulness and meddling being demonstrated in the church to the degree that Paul said it was disorderly? Or it was disruptive? What did that look like? Well, if you follow along the text, it, it, Paul emphasized a connection. A connection between food and work. Between employment and provision. And when you consider that connection, it seems like what was happening is that certain church members who had chosen to not work and thus were unable to provide for themselves because of it were taking advantage of the more affluent members who were working and making money. The problem wasn't just that these members fell on hard times and were soliciting the benevolence of the church maybe one or two times. The problem is that this would become a pattern caused by their persistent slothfulness. They had stopped working on purpose, likely for one of three reasons. Scholars say, uh, most would say this, that, that Paul taught them so much about eschatology, that's the study of end times, that they took the super spiritual approach and they said, well, if, if Christ could come back at any moment, why are we working? We need to be busy about our father's business. And so many of them, uh, scholars say, would, would leave their jobs because they, they were spiritual and they were going to work for God now because the rapture could happen at any moment. Another scholar would, would argue that they, they weren't working because they had fallen uh, under the influence of, of their Greek and, and Roman friends in the culture who said this, that manual labor was beneath them. That was for slaves. Or you, you might think this, they just didn't work because they were lazy. Like literally, it could be that simple. They just had a character problem. For whatever reason, watch, their lack of working was not disablement. It wasn't the result of an unexpected financial crisis. It wasn't the result of being widowed or fatherless. Rather, they were choosing not to work. How do you know? Because verse 10, Paul says, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he. He didn't say if any could not work. If any would not work, they were choosing to not work. And as a result, they had no food. They had no provision. Today, we might call them freeloaders. This slothfulness then caused them to go to church and start meddling in the finances of other church members. In fact, the hardest they ever worked during the week was when they went to church. Or when they saw somebody from church out in the town. And they were busy asking for help and soliciting a handout. This behavior had apparently gotten so bad that it was viewed by Paul as disorderly, out of step, 
disrupting the unity of the church as many of those hard-working church members were being taken advantage of and no doubt getting exasperated because of it. Now I have to stop right here in the text and we have to take a moment to bridge the world of the Thessalonians to the world of fellowship. And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible, is there potential for this kind of behavior to take place within our congregation? I would answer that with the resounding yes. Because it has happened, and it will, it will happen, but I will say this, it doesn't happen often. And for that I'm thankful. But it has happened. I'm not talking now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about church members that have fallen on unexpected hard times and need help. I'm not talking about church members that have been injured or for some other health reason had to file for disability and might need some help to get back on their feet. I'm not talking about the widow who's incapable of working and whose husband left her with nothing. I believe the scripture is ultra clear and if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, I'll show you that the, the church can and should be a place that is benevolent towards one another in a, in a manner that is wise and generous and balanced. Rather than legitimate cases of need, watch your church, I'm talking about some in our congregation who might fall into a pattern of slothfulness. They could work, but choose not to. Or they work, but they're terribly bad stewards of their finances. And as a result, they seek help continually from the church or those within the church who are more affluent. What might that look like? Well, a young couple gets married. They both have jobs. Like a lot of young married couples do, they make the mistake of getting themselves in some financial debt. Then the husband gets laid off. Instead of finding a new job, he stays unemployed for as long as possible and leads his family into even more financial debt. Then he texts a church member that he knows has money and asks for help with his car payment, and he makes it clear that he will pay the church member back and won't ask ever again, so the church member, followed by the leadership of the Lord, helps this brother. A month later, he still doesn't have a job. He can't afford to pay his rent, so he texts another church member, different from the first, and he asks for help. That church member, not knowing that he already has solicited financial help from another church member, is generous and wants to be a blessing to this brother. Well, this pattern continues for several more months and several other church members, and it, it begins to threaten the unity of the church as several more affluent and hardworking, generous members are being taken advantage of, and they're exasperated because of it. That's one possible scenario. Another possibility might be a single mom. She has two kids. She's raising them all on her own. The father isn't paying child support like he's supposed to. She's struggling to pay the bills, let alone buy groceries. She comes to a liberal love event where she senses that we're generous people and loving people. And she comes to church on a Sunday and the, as bad as she wants to come with the right intentions to get close to God and get in his good graces, so to speak, she just ironically cuddles up next to some more affluent members of the church. They take her out to eat a couple times and, of course, pay the bill. They 
buy her kids a Christmas gift. They put gas in her car a few times when she asked them after church to do so. They help pay her rent. And, and the reason they're so generous is because honestly, they just feel like God has led them to, to, to help this mom and her kids. And they truly feel like they're having an impact on her life because she's fallen on such hard times. But then they start noticing a trend. She's only coming when she needs help. She's only coming to Fellowship Baptist Church when we have a liberal love event with some kind of free handout. She's no longer holding a solid job and it becomes clear that this single mom isn't coming to church to worship God. She's coming as a busybody meddling in the finances of generous church members. Does this happen? Well, sure. Not very often, but it does. And if it does, and if it's in the word of God, don't you reckon we should be prepared for how to respond in a biblical and balanced and loving way? Both corporately as a church and individually as church members. See, not to mention this text could help you with your own adult children or grandchildren or employees or co-workers who might target you often for provision. This text, listen, is not going to teach you to stop being benevolent toward one another. It will not teach you to stop being generous. It will not teach you to stop being open-handed toward your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Rather, this is going to teach you how to respond when your benevolence is being taken advantage of. And Paul says two ways. Two ways that you can respond when you become, lack of a better term, the victim of a freeloader. Number one, cut off support to the slothful. Paul's going to teach us how, when, and why we must cut off support to the slothful. And he starts with the how. Verse 6, now we command you, brethren, I want you to follow on your Bible, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Go down to verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. That he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. How are we to cut off support if we get to this point? Here's how. We are to cut off support by intentionally distancing ourselves while maintaining a spirit of love. I just summed up all three of those verses. Let me teach you. At first, it appears... Does it not? Like Paul is, is, is talking about the last step of church discipline, which Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 is, ex, is really excommunication. It's to cast them out of the church. Jesus said, step one, if a sinner doesn't repent, you go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you bring in a witness, step two. If that doesn't work and they still don't repent and they continue in their sin, Jesus said in Matthew 18, step three is you bring them before the church at large. If that doesn't bring them to, to, to a place of repentance, he said step four, you cast them out. And he went so far as to say you treat them like a heathen. Now watch her, that's not my words. And, and for me to even mention that, then move on, I feel like it's a little bit unfair to you. Um, and, and it sounds very, very harsh. And so I want to commit to you that we'll come back and teach. On, on that process and on church discipline in a right way because you should know by now our, our, our idea is that we never want to get to that point. We want, we want to get their attention when we're one-on-one, -on -one, right? We want, to, we want to win a brother before we ever even have to bring anybody else into the situation. That's our heart, all right? 
but, but it sounds like Paul is saying, withdraw yourselves, keep no company with them, so cast them out of the church. But upon careful study, that's really not what he's talking about because the word withdraw, it, it's not as severe as it appears on the surface. It has more of the idea of avoiding somebody, not exiling somebody. Which informs us how to interpret verse 14 when he says, keep no company with them. Here's what he's saying, don't be hospitable towards them. Especially the one who's persistently a freeloader. Because if you do, you will enable them to ask for money and provision that they're unwilling but capable to work for themselves. Now, what does that look like? How do you cut off the support through avoidance and withdrawal? Let me give you a, a couple scenarios. You stop going out to eat with them. Because when you do, you're going to be once again stuck with the bill. Enabling them in their selfish, slothful lifestyle. Is that too practical for you? You stop having them into your home. Because when you do, you're going to hear nothing but sob stories about how they can't pay their bills and you'll be pressured to help them again. You stop giving them rides to church and you set up some other form of transportation for them to get here. Because if you keep giving them a ride, you're going to hear nothing but subtle hints about their need for financial help or for a meal after church, one in which they refuse to work for themselves. You, you quit letting your adult child move in with you every time they get themselves in a financial bind. You keep no company with them in a hospitable way, or else you keep enabling them to persist in their sin of slothfulness. Does this make sense? These are hard decisions to make, but this is how you do it, according to the scripture. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just tell us, okay, here's how you do it in terms of withdrawal and avoidance and intentional distancing. He also deals with our spirit. Because in verse 15, I read it. He said, you don't count them as an enemy. This is how I know that he's not talking about the last step of church discipline. Because Jesus said, you do count them as an enemy of the gospel. You count them as a heathen, and you cast them out of the congregation. I mean, that is worse, 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 worst case scenario. Paul's not saying, saying to do that, because he's saying they are not our enemy. They are still a brother. They are still a sister. What does that mean for Fellowship Baptist Church? That one who is persisting in the sin of slothfulness should still be a part of the fellowship family. Because they're still a brother or sister in Christ. Now listen, I know that, that, that when you become the target of a slothful individual, it can wear you out. It can harden you over time. But know that, that when you get to the point where you have to cut off support, it is never okay to do so with a hateful, condescending attitude towards that person. They are still a part of your church family and should be dealt with in that spirit. Which leads to the next area of instruction. When should we cut off support? See, I'm really thankful Paul put this one in there. You know why? Because we're emotional people. And so, some of us, because of our emotions, we're going to be too patient. And others, based on their emotions and personalities, they're not going to be patient enough with their brother or sister. And so Paul gave his clear admonition, okay, here's when you know you have to take this step. Now, none of us want to have to take this step. But we know how now. And he says, if it comes to that, here's when you know you have to do it. All right? I'll say it this way. After they have persisted, in their sin of slothfulness, despite being shown and taught a better way. Okay, let me show you. Verse 7 through 9, study. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, 
Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. Now, do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, we've showed you a better way by now. And he says, here's how we've been an example to you. It's not like we're just expecting this without demonstrating it to you. He says that when we came to start the church and establish the church, he said, we had the power to ask you to pay us for preaching and teaching the word of God. Paul teaches that those who preach the word and labor and doctrine are worthy of double honor. So he's not excusing the church away from taking care of their pastors, but he is saying this. We chose to not do that in this situation because you were a baby church. We wanted to be bivocational. And so he said, I, I, I spent my time in the evenings making tents. And during the day, I was discipling new believers. And I did that because I wanted to show you an example that you can both serve the Lord and work hard at a secular job all at the same time. I've showed you. I've labored with my hands. I've labored in preaching. I've done it, I've done it simultaneously. But he said, I just haven't showed you. I've taught because verse 10 and verse 12 say, we taught you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. We taught you, verse 12, that with quietness you work and eat your own bread. Now we got to be fair. We got to be compassionate here because I'm going to say it again. He didn't say would not or, or, or could not. He said would not work. The church, listen, we are commanded, not suggested, commanded to help care for the poor. I'm going to say that one more time. And if you're thinking, if you're thinking, I'm not going to go there. You just need to, you need to agree with what the Bible says. We are commanded to help take care of the poor. Do the poor take advantage of us? You bet. Do we take advantage of God? You bet. But the church, we are one of God's ordained institutions. To help feed the poor. Jesus himself did that often. Our way of doing that, just so you know, our way of doing that in a balanced way is we have what we call food vouchers or grocery vouchers. We have a budget of $350 every month that we give out in grocery vouchers. When somebody comes in and they need help, most of the time they're not asking for food. They're asking for money. We don't give out money. Um... A lot of times they'll ask us to pay an electric bill. We don't do that. We feel the best thing that we can do for them is help feed them. That's a necessity of life. And so to do that, they come in and, and, and they have to have a valid ID, a work ID or, or, or a driver's license or something to confirm who they are. And, and then they have to fill out an application. And it lets us know, okay, do you, do you have a, a home church? If not, we obviously invite them to our church. If they do, then we, we, we recommend after we help them to go back to their home church and, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and we just want to keep a record. We, we, we're going to make sure we're not being taken advantage of. And so they can only get a grocery voucher twice a year, once every six months. Um, and we, we got a very, very careful approach to that, a generous approach, but a careful, wise approach to that. So, so we are helping those. We have a program to help those who are on need. On top of that, we, we do liberal love events. That, that all, the entire event, in, in some cases, is just giving out something. We, we, we gave out pizzas during the COVID-19 on, on two separate occasions, spent hundreds of dollars to feed our community, to help provide nourishment for them. We've given away oil changes 
to single moms and military moms. And I don't, I don't, I don't need necessarily to go on and on and on, but you get, you get the idea. Our church has played a role in helping care for the poor. To care for the needy. We are instructed to do so, but watch here, watch here. While it would be disobedient to Scripture for us to turn our back on caring for the poor, it would be just as disobedient for us to support those who are too lazy to work. This is, it teaches us that. We live in a society of entitlement. The idea that those who are able to work hard but refuse to work hard are entitled to be paid money from those who do. Here's the point. Paul said, I've already shown you and I've already taught you that there is a connection between food and work, between employment and provision. And so here's what we're supposed to learn, church. We don't cut off support to the slothful until, number one, we first show them a better way, and number two, we teach them a better way. If you aren't willing to show and teach the person asking you for benevolence, if you aren't willing to love them enough to show and teach them the connection between food and work, hard work and provision, listen, you have no right to stop being benevolent towards them because they're getting on your nerves or because you deem them a lazy person. If you don't love them enough to say, let me show you a better way. Let me help you get a, a job. Let me help you learn what the Bible teaches about these things. And, and if you don't love them enough to do that, then you just can't cast them aside. That's why Paul says in verse 15, admonish your brother. So take the time to sit down and correct him if you need to. Lovingly teach him if you need to. Don't just say, oh, they're just, they have a reputation. Cast him aside. Be a good church member. Be a good brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Before you cut off support, teach them and show them. If after you've done that, in a spirit of love and patience, they continue to persist in the sin of slothfulness, they continue to meddle in the finances of others, then Paul says, you cut off support through withdrawal, and you refuse to enable their sin any longer. Does that make sense? The last question Paul answers is why? Why should we cut off support? Like, what's the purpose in this approach? Verse 14, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. We should cut off support in order to bring the person to a point of genuine shame and repentance. Now, now the idea here is that when you distance yourself from the slothful meddler and you no longer keep company with them, you no longer answer their phone calls or return the text or give rides or pay rent or open your home, when you no longer do those things, they will hopefully come to a point of recognition where they realize what their sin is and where their slothfulness has led them. And hopefully that brings them to a point of shame and hopefully that shame brings them to a point of biblical repentance. Please hear me, church. Repentance and reconciliation is always the goal in this situation. And really with any situation related to church discipline. Now I know at first glance this action of cutting off support seems harsh. It seems unloving. But think about this. At the end of the day, 
Isn't it one of the most loving things you can actually do for your brother or sister in Christ? Because at the end of the process, if they haven't yielded to your example of hard work and your teaching of hard work, hopefully your cutting off support will cause them to repent and get right with God and change their behavior. It would be absolutely unloving for you to continue to enable their sin of slothfulness while disguising your enablement as some kind of spiritual display of generosity. You're not helping that brother. You're not helping that adult child or grandchild. You're hurting them in that situation. Let's review. How do we cut off support? We withdraw ourselves from the slothful and no longer enable them in their sin. When? Only after we've loved them enough to show them and teach them the principles of hard work. Why? In an effort to bring about genuine repentance. Paul closes the text with one more truth. And it's this. Continue to support those who are truly in need. He says, number one, you cut off the slothful. But number two, you continue to support those who are truly in need. Where do I get that? Verse 13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Here's why Paul put that verse in this text. Because he knew that those in this church that were working hard could potentially become so tired of freeloaders that they actually became indifferent and even bitter towards those who were truly in need. And so he says this, you just keep doing good to those who truly need it. Be not weary in doing good, even though some take advantage of that. You see, see, we can actually get to the point, after being taken advantage of for so long, that when an actual true need comes our way, we're too hardened to see it. We're certainly too hardened to fulfill it if we did see it. Because we think that everybody in need is just like the person that took advantage of us. About two years into doing this grocery voucher thing, I get a phone call. The phone call is, 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 is from a landlord of an apartment complex. Not one in, in our congregation. He's not a church member. And he calls me and, and he says, are you guys giving out grocery vouchers? And I say, yeah, yeah, we, we are. He says, well, I hate to notify you, um, but there are some people that are getting your grocery vouchers for free, and they're coming to my apartment complex, and they're selling them. And they're selling them for a high price. And at that moment, you know what I felt like doing? Calling Lindsay and saying, cancel it. We're done. Rip every grocery voucher in half put it in the paper shredder, we're, we're done with this. But I can't do that. I can't be weary in well-doing. Every time I'm open-handed, they're going to be some selfish, slothful person that takes advantage of me. And I, I know this is kind of cliche, but it's so true. Like, didn't Jesus feel that way over and over and over? fed the 5,000, and then when he actually, John 6, he actually preached one challenging message to them, most of them walked away. I love that church until you actually preach the Bible. They dipped. He got taken advantage of all the time. And yet, what did he do? Put a cross on his back. Walked the Via Della Rosa, and with open hands, said, I'm going to die for people that will one day reject me, and take advantage of me. 
And God, through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, reminded me, you'll be fine. Fellowship Baptist Church will be just fine. I'm afraid that there might be some in here that have worked hard for their money. You've worked hard to get into the position where you are. You have stewarded wisely. And maybe through the years there have been some people that have targeted you for provision. And to be honest with you, after being taken advantage of, you, you're just hardened. And now anytime you even hear that person's name or see that person, it's like you're making a big left turn as wide as you can around them and it just infuriates you almost. And now you're just tight-fisted. And you think you're interpreting everybody's need through, through the lens of the one person that just took advantage of you. And Paul says to you, open your hands again. Be not weary in well-doing. So you have a, an adult child that has taken advantage of you. Listen to me closely, parents. That doesn't mean every one of your children are going to do that. Because one did and continues to do so doesn't mean you have to treat every other child like they're going to do the same thing. Every other grandchild like they do the same thing. Every other employee like they're going to do the same thing. Every other church member like they're going to do the same thing. Just because one single mom used you and abused you and manipulated you doesn't mean that every single mom that is in need is not truly in need. May our church be not weary in well-doing. May every one of the church members sitting under the sound of my voice who work hard for your money and have given some of it away and have been taken advantage of, keep your hands open. Because if God has blessed you to get to that point, he has blessed you to be a blessing. And you will be taken advantage of. And you will be manipulated. And you will get upset about it. And you will get hurt. But at the end of the day, God will still send people your way that really need you. What do I do in that situation? I just taught you. We have 2 Thessalonians 3 to teach us this is how you know when to open your hand, and this is how you know when to close it. It's right there. So I'll close by just putting everybody in one of three categories. Maybe you are the slothful meddler. This text actually wasn't written to you. Um, some of the things are inferred in there that can definitely be convicting to the slothful meddler tonight. So I would say if you found yourself as the one meddling in finances of other family members and, and co-workers and maybe even church members, and, and, and to my knowledge, we, we don't have that right now, but, but if, if, if that's a situation and you are a slothful meddler, let me encourage you tonight. Work hard. Save your money. Spend within your means. Quit sliding a credit card. Hold a job whether they treat you right or not, whether they pay you what you think you should get deserve, you, des you think you deserve or not, stay at the job. Work hard. Get back on your feet. Understand that slothfulness is not a money problem. It's a heart problem. And repent of that sin. Put some, put some gloves on. Get a shovel in your hand and go to work tomorrow. 
I want to talk to the person in here that might truly be in need. This church loves you. And if you find yourself unexpectedly falling on hard times, don't be so prideful that you refuse to ask for help. If there's a way in which we can help you, we, we, we can't promise to fix your financial crisis. There might be a way in which our benevolence fund can be a help to you. And I'm not afraid to put that out there, by the way. We're okay with that. We're not going to be taken advantage of. We're going to be wise and balanced and protective. But at the same time, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters that do work hard. And some of them are doing okay. And they might be willing to help. And if you're truly in need, just come talk to us. We'll love to help in any way the Lord allows us to. Then let me talk to the generous one. The one who's being targeted for, for provision. Be not weary in well-doing. As the Lord leads you and provides, you keep giving. And you keep living to give. Don't hoard. Don't make an idol out of your money. You are blessed so that you might be a blessing. And so tuck away the principles of 2 Thessalonians 3. And say, I'm going to live by those. So that I know what to do. If my generosity is taken advantage of, I know how, when, and why. If you agree with the Bible tonight, say amen. amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's mind God. I don't know how he might have spoke to your heart.